Hello and welcome back to the Neil and Robbie podcast. It is a new year and a new decade and I finally dragged Robbie away from his dog again so we can record a new episode. Now, before I go to you, Robbie, and see how you are, I am super excited because today is our first ever guest interview show that we have ever had. So before I welcome you, Robbie, I am delighted to welcome Julie Melville to the show. Um, now, Julie, first off, I'm going to apologize. We haven't got a clue what we're doing. We've never done an interview before. This could go all over the place. Um, and for all of our listeners, um, Julie is the, or last year was the ladies solo champion in Biking Man Taiwan, which ran in uh, November, I believe. So, Julie, welcome to the show. How are you? Hi, guys. Yeah, I'm great. I've uh, had a lovely day. It's been a beautiful day here in Qatar as opposed to yesterday where it was pouring with rain. So, oh, lovely winter's day. Don't. It, the rain has been even worse over here in Dubai today. So, yesterday it was pretty bad. Today, I was pedaling through hub deep puddles and lakes and it was miserable. Absolutely miserable. So, yeah, it's not always to all those people I keep saying, come out to the Middle East for a winter training camp. It's beautiful. It's sunny. It never rains. I'm lying, clearly. Um, anyway, right, Robbie, how are you? It's been a long time. Um, I am very well, mate. I am very well. I had a lovely Christmas, lovely New Year. I got to relax a lot, which was really cool. So I'm really back in action and just hammering uh, training, life, um, work's been crazy. But yeah, been good, mate. Just honestly, like you're gonna, you're gonna say I told you so, like a million times over this. But I'm learning, like throughout cycling and life, just to um, rest a little bit more to take a little bit more time out to take a little bit more time to relax and stuff so i've been doing a lot of that recently so yes mate it's um i'm very good so yeah i'm just very excited about being back and i've heard a lot about julie i heard she's trouble so <laughs> i'm looking forward to catching up with her and finding out why okay cool and i just like to say all of this rest and recovery is with the full approval of your coach uh yes yes it is yeah like and i'm really happy as like obviously with you coaching me, um, the the figures are getting a lot higher and stuff like that. So it's really nice to see that I'm doing less, feeling better and making much, much, much more progress. So yeah, it's really exciting. I, I'm going to start getting worried because you're going to kick my ass next time we race. Yeah, that that's the plan. That's the plan. I'm going to meet my maker. Right. We didn't we didn't bring Julie onto the call to bore her with our domestics. So let's uh, enough about you, Robbie. Uh, it's not all about you. Uh, let's get to Julie. So, yeah, as I said, Julie was the winner of the female solo category of last year's Biking Man Taiwan. And in fact, she was the only female to finish. So two years in a row that there's been only one female finisher. So Actually, Julie, I want to start at the end of your ride in Taiwan. Tell us about the last 10 kilometers and what happened. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think if you'd interviewed me the day after this, you'd get a very teary interview. But uh, as it's now two months on, I can talk with a little more, uh, a little more, uh, or a little less tears, actually. Um, I guess the last 10 kilometres of, of Taiwan really takes you into the, the outskirts of New Taipei and uh, you start to get a bit more urban, um, you get a lot less hilly and uh, really you know you're on the home stretch and uh, 
with about 10 kilometers to go, I was feeling pretty good. I knew I could make it. I knew I could get there. I had plenty of time. I was well within the cutoff. Um, I, I was wet. It had been raining again. Um, but, you know, I was pretty solid. And uh, I turned to go up the very, very last hill of the... Um, of the race really you know if you look at the race profile you've got some massive hills for you know the first well for the whole race and then there's this tiny little hill at the end and as I was going up the hill I uh, I changed gears and slipped my chain and uh, in trying to unclip quickly to not fall off my bike I uh, I felt a searing pain in my leg just behind my knee and couldn't really get back on the bike for the rest of the sort of next kilometre as I walked up the hill um, or 500 metres as I walked up the hill and managed to kind of pedal the rest of the last 10 kilometres without clipping in but uh, little do it, did I know it at the time but I'd, uh, I'd, I'd ruptured uh, the distal part of my one of my hamstrings in that moment and uh, yeah it's not been a great two months afterwards. Ow, I, I, I am wincing with pain just hearing you tell that story. Mm. Yeah. I'm really sorry to hear that, Julie. That's that's <laughs> awful. Like, honestly, that must have on what an what an anticlimax. Uh, well, I I don't think I realised at the time. Um, I knew I'd hurt myself. I I kind of thought I, in all honesty, lots of people who've ever ruptured a muscle or or torn a muscle very badly will tell you that it feels like someone's kicked them. But I, I thought maybe I had a really bad cramp or a really bad muscle spasm. So I tried to stretch it out. Ironically. Um, I'm sure that didn't do any good, I was walking good, up it? the hill. Uh, possibly not. <laughs> possibly not. But, uh, you know, I think there's so much adrenaline going through your system when you're at that stage in a race. I had so much caffeine, so much sugar, so much adrenaline. I knew I could finish. So uh, I, I didn't really notice it fully until I tried to get off. And uh, I couldn't unclip at the end. So I had to unclip on my right foot. It's not the foot I clip un unclip on normally. So... I think I only realised as I tried to get off the bike at the very end that mm, actually this is probably not just a sort of a muscle spasm. So, uh, you know, we live and learn. I learn to stretch more. So where whereabouts are you now in your recovery? Are you all back to normal or what's the, are you still in the process uh, of recovering? I, I'm, I'm two weeks, two weeks to the day off crutches. Um, I was on crutches for nearly six weeks I guess um sort of in the initial stages they thought I needed surgery but uh, long and short is that because of several factors I didn't end up having surgery so I just had a very conservative six weeks on crutches and now I'm two weeks off crutches and uh back doing some work in the gym to really strengthen I, I lost a lot of muscle lost a lot of everything really and uh two weeks in the gym to try and uh, get strong again. And uh, I third, I've, I've had my third session on an indoor trainer, um, restricted to about 140 watts total. Um, so we'll get there, but it's a slow progress. It's pretty frustrating. You know, I kind of came back from Taiwan expecting that I was going to be super fit, super amazing, use all this lovely fitness and basically sat around for the next two months um not doing a lot honestly um julie if it means anything so neil of her has had so much complaining from me about this but i raced raced around the netherlands last year and i got too cold i pushed way too hard in the last couple of days i 
really just went a bit unprepared clothing wise and I got awful patella tendonitis and I couldn't do anything for six weeks and it was soul destroying it was absolutely horrible I had six weeks of just wanting to ride my bike it was summer it was nice and I just sat there looking at it across the room getting wound up about it not thinking you know what else is life about than riding bikes eh yeah, you know, it's really, really interesting. One of my colleagues at work and, you know, I, I work with sick children and one of my colleagues at work kind of one day sort of over lunch put it in perspective for me. He said, are you healthy? Are your children healthy? Have you got a roof over your head? Then stop complaining. I was like, okay. So Yeah, that's harsh, but maybe fair. It was a good perspective. So, you know, riding a bike isn't everything and two months off is nothing in the big scheme of it, you know. It's it's season-ending kind of injury, but it's not career-ending, and I'll get back, you know. And it's one of the things, as a, as a coach, I always encourage people to take time off, and sometimes the time off comes unexpectedly. You will have had a really yeah. good recovery for two months, and so, okay, yeah, your hamstring's uh, taken a while to recover, but the rest of you will have had a really good off-season with doing nothing. <laughs> as much as it might absolutely suck because we are you know over here in the middle east it is winter which is the perfect time to ride your bike so that must have been quite frustrating um well great to see that you are back on the bike and riding again and i'm sure it won't be long before your thoughts turn to what you're going to do next and i'm sure we'll probably get to that right at the end of the show but let's go back all the way to the the beginning let's go back all the way to the beginning who is Julie Melville and how did you end up racing through the jungle in the middle of the night in what was a lot of freezing cold, miserable weather? <laughs> um, well, who am I? Um, I, I, was a, I? I was a swimmer as a kid, swimmer, rugby player. You know, there wasn't much in the way of sport that I didn't try as a kid. And when I moved to the UK, um, I heard a lot about the, I'm Australian and I moved to the UK in my 20s for, you know, a working holiday and heard about the Heathrow injection, which is basically Australians who put on 10 kilograms as they pass through Heathrow Airport. Um, so I, I took up really sport um, pretty solidly when I arrived in the UK and started running and bought a bike and met my husband sort of through triathlon. Um, so I, I was really a triathlete um, in my early career. Uh, you know, I will try not to hold that against you. Yeah. <laughs> um, do, do you so so when you're riding along on your aero bars, do you look up or do you look down all the time at your power meter? Because that tends to be what triathletes do, right? Do you know? I'm not sure if you've ever seen a photo of me doing any of these races. I don't use aero bars. Never have. Um, ironically, as a triathlete. <laughs> do you get do you get ultra racers claw? where you kind of get off your bike uh, at the end and you've got like these two pincers and nothing else works because you've been stuck in that position for so long? Not so much. I, I've got a... The reason I don't have aero bars is because I've got uh, flat bars and I've never found a, an aero bar that will fit on them. And, uh, you know, I, I kind of went into this with the bike I have and, you know, at some point, hopefully I'll have a, a gravel bike that I can put aero bars on. But... um. No, I use the, I vary my position. I ride a lot on the drops. I, you know, if I'm really desperate to change position, I can ride sort of just with my forearms on the, on the flat bar, part of the bar. So no, I, I, I never had sort of that claw hand that people talk about, which, you know, maybe I'm just lucky, maybe not sure why, but no, um, 
I, I don't ride on my aero bars <laughs> ever. <laughs> oh well, okay. So you're you you are not there staring down at your power meter. I just I have this thing that triathletes they're always staring at their power meters. They're never looking up where they're going. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a long time since I was a triathlete. I've had uh, a few years and two kids in between my last Ironman race. So I, I probably uh, in the pool. I'm a rock star for like a hundred meters and. Uh, that's about it nowadays so, <laughs> and then it all goes and I, wrong and I don't run anymore yeah I don't run anymore so I'm well no that's why very, very much a retired triathlete running's bad for you so you moved to the UK you took up triathlon to avoid the the Heathrow injection as it were yep and how how does uh, uh, yeah how does that get to how does that get to being in an ultra race uh I had to give up triathlon because I injured my back um couldn't run anymore Moved to moved to Doha um, for a job out here, and uh, when I left Doha, I was actually uh, when I left London. Actually, I was uh, marathon swimming, so I went from triathlon to marathon swimming. Um, but sort of, I don't know, ten kilometers in a pool, staring at a black line, really, you know, didn't float my boat for too long. Um, and so when I got to Qatar, I bought a bike out here and I found a cycling club and just started riding my bike sort of post having two babies and fell in love with cycling again. I'd always kind of, by the end of my triathlon kind of racing, I'd really had decided that the bike was my favourite bit. So, you know, I got here and loved riding my bike and then loved riding my bike a long way and saw, I, I think I saw Biking Man and Man the very first year saw all the promos for it and thought hmm, that'd be really cool but uh just didn't really sort of didn't really have the wherewithal to think about it and then uh Jen Wicks actually from Qatar is a friend of mine and she had signed up and Jen being the organized person she is was super organized and about three weeks before Aman I messaged her and said I'm thinking of doing Aman <laughs> what do you reckon <laughs> Right, right, so hang on, this is this is three weeks before the amount that you did. You no, caught... three weeks before the one I the three weeks before I the one I didn't do. Right, okay. So... I was gonna say that's you know, that's backing yourself quite a lot no. there, giving yourself three weeks of No. Of, so I rang prep. No, I rang Jen and she she basically told me it was a bad idea not to do it. Uh, a bad idea to do it. So the first year I didn't do it, but then I spent the whole of that race watching you all thinking, God, I wish I was there. Um and then basically signed up for the next one, you know. What what was it, what was could... appealing about watching all of these dots race around? What made you think that's what I want to do? Do you know what I? Uh, I remember seeing the photo of Jen at the end and the photo of her bike held above her head on uh, Jebel Shams, and just thinking, I want a piece of that. <laughs> I, I just I. The look on everyone's faces, I saw, you know, Juliana, like her going up Jebel Shams, the photos just made me go, oh, I could do that. Yeah. I, I just... so, so I think if I remember correctly, the, the photo of Jen at the finish line, she's, I think she might be in tears. Uh, yeah, she is. The, the photo of Juliana going up Jebel Shams, I think she's walking. <laughs> this is it's building an amazing photo of, I, you know, I saw this. I saw this woman cry at the end. There was somebody walking up the hill. I, I just, I've got to go and do that. That's just, yes. I have to say that for the record, actually, the majority of Jebel Shams, I actually walked up it alongside Juliana. So we had a lovely conversation and that's where I actually properly met Juliana, who's quite an inspirational person as well. Yeah. But 
uh, yeah, it was. Um, I can see how that would appeal to you. I can definitely see that. You, you never told me that you walked up there, Robbie. I did. There was um, there was a lot of that. So I am genius number one. And while I was planning my race, I thought it would be okay to go on a fifty-two thirty-six semi-compact instead of a compact. And that was one regret I will take away on my book of ultra. Definitely needed more gears. That's what I ride. <laughs> Is it really? Are you animal? You're yeah. animal, Julie. But yeah, just I know. And now I'm on a one by. Like actually, I think day to day, the more I ultra race, the more I turn out like Neil. Actually, this is a, this is a slow, uncomfortable process. You're just <laughs> morphing into Neil. Can we cut your hair, Robbie? Please, can we cut your hair? That's what I want to do. I want to shave your hair off. Next time I'm back in the UK, we're going to shave your hair off. One day we'll have a race and we'll go into an ultra race together. And if I win, yeah, you have to do something for me. And if I lose, you can cut my hair. What do I do if I win? If you win? I haven't decided yet. Okay, think about that one before I agree. Um, so, yeah, so a man, like, really blew you away. You saw these photos of, of Jen crying and Juliana walking and thought, I, I like the look of that. Um, and, yeah, and that's where you and I met. So we met on the start line of a man last year. And Yeah, yeah. Uh, talk, talk us through a man. Talk us through your race experience because... Probably yeah. It's it's. I found my first ultra racing experience really quite life changing. Yeah, I mean, Jen did say that to me. You know, I I met her a couple of times after the race to go through my plan, and I think it's safe to say she's much more of a planner as, than I am. I kind of was like, I've got a bike, I've got a bike saddlebag that I bought off someone secondhand. I'm going to show up and give it a whirl. <laughs> Jen had it. What what can go wrong? Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> Um, I, I mean, I was not prepared. I don't think I had really any idea, but I know that, uh, it's in my nature to finish things. I just, you know, it's just what I do. I'm a finisher, you know, I'm known as a finisher at my job. I'm so I went to Oman just thinking, you know, I'll give this a whirl and see what happens. And I was so unprepared. I, well, I'd be interested to kind of dig into what you mean by unprepared because I, now I know for a fact you are a you are a strong bike rider, and I'm pretty sure you came into a man physically strong. Did you what what were you what were you not prepared for? Uh, I I mean I've ridden long rides. I've ridden 250k rides in a day. You know, like I've ridden long. I race. I ride. You know. 400 kilometers most weeks without really too much trouble but um, I had no idea how to manage the kind of strategy how to you know I stopped far too much I, I, I had messages from my husband going you know saying well Hella stopped for 15 minutes and your stoppage time's nearly three hours <laughs> I was like okay I was you know I was <laughs> chatting to people <laughs> I was um, and I you know I hadn't I hadn't ever ridden my bike. Actually, I'd ridden my bike once fully loaded um, on a flat road here in Qatar. Um, I I think on the first night I had to stop and uh, adjust my light because it wasn't shining in the right place. Um, I'm telling everyone things that I should never tell now. You know, I had no idea about how, to, how and when I was going to charge things. I hadn't planned any of my stops. I 
basically got on my bike with my Garmin loaded. Um, I had, however, downloaded the base maps, unlike Georgie, who I think was downloading the base map as we started <laughs> the race. Um, but uh, I was like, oh, I did that last night. Um, so, I, yeah, I just, I had, I had no plan. You're not the first person who's turned up to the start of a race like that without really going, having the map or the route on their Garmin or whatever yeah, navigational yeah. device. So you're not alone yeah. there. Actually, can I, I have to say, I when in so many races I've done, you turn up at the start line, there's always one person going, my, 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 my route isn't working. And I even remember in a race, like what was it last year, riding along in the first hour, someone just goes to me, goes, mate, I'm getting all this from my phone, but do you know how to get a map from your phone to your Garmin? Because I was going to do this last night and I didn't get the time. And I was like, you're asking the wrong guy. <laughs> you know, just just race, follow everyone else. Now, when was the moment that you thought, wow? I, I think we probably, we've all been through that. We know there's that moment in that first race where you go, Oh my God, this is amazing. Oh, so many. Um, yeah, see, for me, it was quite late in the race. You know, Jebel Shams was amazing. I, I loved the gravel section of Jebel Shams. I, uh, you know, I was mountain biking up there, basically. But um, I think for me, it was probably the next day when, you know, I, I'd ridden for, I don't know, 300 kilometers from the top of Jebel Shams and I was riding through the desert, through the sand section, through the desert section, which apparently is very beautiful, but uh, I was, it was very dark and, you know, 2 a.m. And I looked up and there were stars everywhere. And I just thought, wow, like this is, this is what life is, you know, you've got to get out there and uh, just take these things by the horns. And if you do it, you get experiences like this of being in the middle of nowhere, pitch black on a desert road, in a foreign country with millions of stars, you know, and no one else around and you got there all on your own. Um, and I think that was the bit that I just thought, yeah, this is, this is the way to, to race. You know, it's not, it's not crit races where it's all hectic and it's not, you know, even hundred K races, you know, it's, it's getting somewhere and seeing somewhere and being all on your own in the middle of the night, surrounded by millions of stars. So I think that was probably, the first time I thought, this is for me, this is real. That's you know. awesome. Did you, um, did you cry at that point? Like, because I'm nearly crying now uh... just hearing you tell the story about it because <laughs> I know how emotional you get on these rides. And I, I know, I'm pretty sure Robbie's cried. I've cried lots during these races and that sounds like a tearful moment. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think I cried a lot, Naman. Um I think maybe I didn't race nearly hard enough in Amman. I got far too much sleep, and um, I, I think I, I think um, I don't think I was crying then. No, no, there were no tears. I think I saved the tears for for the very last day in Amman. Um, and I look back on Amman now, and I think, wow, that was actually quite a short race. You know, three days is is nothing. And if I did it now, I would sleep a lot less. And you know, I, I don't think I maybe I just don't remember crying in Amman. Um, it was, yeah, I don't, I don't remember crying a lot. <laughs> I'm sure we'll get to Taiwan soon because I think there were lots of tears there. Um, now I, I remember, uh, 
I remember you and I having a, a catch up afterwards, and 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 it and it was really clear from from the way you were talking that you'd been bitten hard by this, which uh, often people are. Um, but you you know you weren't sure when you know when when or if you would go and do another ultra race. Um, so you know what was the uh, what was the lead into Taiwan like, and you know when did you say do you know what, Neil, you're looking after the kids for a couple of weeks. I'm going to Taiwan. Uh, I I think. They maybe at the and my son's just walked into the room now. He's Has he got like, his drums with him? Sign language, or is it? He's no, got the he's guitar. Got no drums. <laughs> he's the guitar player. Is he an ultra racer? Uh, he's a cyclist, but uh, doesn't like cold water swimming, so may not be a triathlete. Oh, uh, as long as he's not a triathlete, he's an ultra racer. Then we're all good. We're all good. <laughs> this is this is like. This is this is not quite as bad as having Robbie's Robbie's dog join the conversation. Actually, yeah. Like honestly, like can I just say, like I have to apologise to Neil because at the start of this recording, the dog just pushed the door open, ran in, jumped on my laptop, and then just ran out again. And I was like, and I was like, did anyone pick up on that? And I was like, I don't. I'll just be quiet and hope nothing. So I apologise for the editing. That needs uh, to be done. That I have to do because I have to do all the, the editing. Um, right. Okay. So uh, yeah. So I, I was so, asked, sorry. Uh, sorry. I think sorry. The question was yeah. How 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 did then Taiwan come about? Uh, well, I think after Oman, the the sort of chat group remained quite active, and people were all talking about their next race. And Corsica was probably too soon for me. Um, and I think I had the fear about how cold Corsica would get. And uh, Portugal is the day of my daughter's birthday, so it was never going to happen. Um, the Inca Divide stretched too far for me, you know, first year in. So I looked at the Biking Man calendar and sort of said, eh, Taiwan looks like a good time of year. Um, again, didn't really do my research, just thought Taiwan's a nice tropical country. Um, chatted to my husband about, you know, my husband is called Neil also, so chatted to my Neil about it and said, he said, yeah, well, you know, have a look at it and see what you see what you think. And I think uh, I toyed with the idea for several weeks and then I started training before I signed up really, sort of started ramping up the miles here in Qatar. And I think the, the moment that I hit go on it, I was, my family were all back in the UK for their summer holidays and I was sat here by myself with not much to do and riding my bike a lot. And I thought, yeah, yeah. So I signed up and then uh, when you, you know, you, you you hit go and you have to put your time prediction in. And um, I looked at the results from last year and I thought, oh, wow, everyone was pretty slow. Like, you know, mm, this must be a bit bit longer. And uh, and then uh, then I looked at Perrine's time and I thought, oh, geez, Perrine 119 hours. Like, this is like, maybe quite a serious race and signed up anyway and then I uh then I actually looked at the race profile and the course profile and, and thought oh yeah this is this is maybe a bit harder than I realized um and then I really didn't expect the weather um it was my husband who's a Scottish mountaineer who said to me you know it's cold at 2700 meters and I was mm, like, yes oh, it is oh, yeah yeah, especially, I know that. I know especially that now. at night. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know. Yeah, so again, the the moral of the story is I went in and signed up pretty unprepared, and uh, luckily my husband helped me get a bit more prepared by understanding that I would need things like a down jacket and you know warm clothes. So 
I didn't go in as unprepared as I might have without his support. I'm not sure um, any of the photos of you on the race. I don't think there's any photos where you don't have your down jacket on. I think every photo you've <laughs> got your down few. you've got your down jacket on and you look cold <laughs> and it's raining. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I mean, the first day was glorious. You know, the very first day through the jungles was absolutely glorious. I think I may have had my rain jacket on occasionally um, for the spits of rain, but um, the first day was beautiful. And the the hitting the coast on the very first day was, you know, I did cry then, um, just because it was crying because it was so beautiful um but yeah by the end of the second or third day I was pretty much in my down jacket the entire way can I just say like I feel as though because obviously I raced Oman the year before you Julie and Neil I was with you that first year and then I did Taiwan the year before you as well I feel as though I got really lucky with the weather on all of the races I've done that you've done as well I I have been following the races quite closely anyway, and like Corsica the year before, you know, I was riding in the night in just a, you know, a a windproof, and then I'm talking to Neil, and he was like, it was minus two, and you were talking about Taiwan, and how cold it was, and it's, I I really feel for you, because it's it's hard (laughs) enough to race it in the warmth, talk about when it gets really cold. Yeah, I mean... As a caveat, I had a down jacket on in Qatar today, so I'm maybe not the best uh, benchmark. I, I, I'm Australian through and through. I don't do cold ever. Yeah, and when you're, <laughs> when you're used to riding all the time in, in the Middle East, then you just get used to the warmth. And when it gets cold, it's, it's horrible. It was 14 degrees today, yeah. and I thought I was going to freeze. And that was yeah, with arm warmers, jersey, gilet, waterproof. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So, right, so... It, it's about relative temperature. Absolutely, absolutely. So, so you went in. Your your husband dug out all his mountaineering kit to keep you warm. Um, <laughs> you you weren't in. You know, you you looked at it and thought, "Well, hang on, this might be a bit challenging." Um, and you set off on day one. And and you know, day one for those dot watching who hadn't who did it the year before, we were all like, "Oh, that looks a little bit more punchy than it was the year before." When did you kind of think? Yeah. I've got a challenge on my my plate here yeah I mean I I don't think I went I knew day one was going to be hard Axel was very clear in our briefing that day one was going to be tough it may well have been he sort of said it may well be the toughest day you do um so I knew fully to expect that you know if I was going to push through past checkpoint one I was going to hit 7,000 meters in a day of climbing so um I kind of didn't didn't have any illusions that it was going to be a hard day um and I think, I mean, you know, day one for me was uh, I, I fell off going up one of the very steep little climbs and, and trying to get back on, fell off again and banged my derailleur and ended up with a rear hanger that wouldn't change really. So I ended up with two gears for the rest of the sort of, I don't know, 50Ks for the rest of the climbs until I could find a little bike shop who could help me with my derailleur thankfully not my rear hanger <laughs> clearly i would always advise carrying a spare rear hanger that's that's i actually did. On I, I did have a spare rear hanger with me you did <laughs> I, do, do yeah you, i did oh, do you know the story of neil in the rear hanger yeah i do i do the world do, seems do, to know which the story. is yeah Just, um well, did, did you hear then, the bit it? about the story where uh, where you told him to keep one and 
there, there was yeah. a, there oh, was was a, there was a conversation in a hotel room where he laughed at me and tried to throw mine away because it was too heavy. <laughs> so you can imagine the satisfaction I got out of it. Well, actually, no, I got no satisfaction because I wanted to see him move on. But honestly, um, yeah, always carry a hanger. Like that should be tattooed on every ultra cyclist's hand. Yeah. Carry always carry a hanger. Well, yeah. I, I carried one just really because I'd read Neil's story about his TCR and thought, oh, I should carry one of them. So I had one with me, but uh, thankfully the, the magician in the bike shop didn't need one. He could kind of bend a few bits and re-index the, the, the gears and sorted it out for me. So um, it was it was impressive and he saved my race, really. I, I probably couldn't have gone on. I I'd planned to go into a big major town and catch a taxi 40 kilometres from the route and come back to the route and happened to find this tiny little bike shop in the middle of a village in Taiwan, basically, um, who who was able to fix the bike. So without that, I would have lost a lot more time and maybe wouldn't have made the cutoff. So it was kind of race-saving little bike mechanic in Taiwan. That's awesome when you find road angels like that, isn't it? Yeah, when you least yeah, expect yeah. to see them so yeah. how big was day one then uh, so did you make it to did you make it to checkpoint one by the end of day one yeah i think i got to checkpoint one at 8 p.m 9 p.m maybe um on the first night and uh the uh and i think his name is francois i can never remember i was pretty tired he uh the the osteopath i spent some time with him just trying to help with the you know, I, I already had a sore knee where I'd fallen off. So um, the osteopath spent some time sort of helping me with my knee, um, just giving me a bit of a stretch. And uh, then I went on my way and I, I rode the rest of the night till about 2, maybe 3 a.m. I can't really remember, but uh, at which point I thought I'm pretty tired now and, I, you know, I'm nearly hitting 24 hours. So I, uh, I tried to find a hotel in, in a town and ironically ended up staying in a by the hour hotel in Taiwan. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. For, for, for yeah. those of you with a more sensitive disposition, the kind of by the hours hotels are, are not really for sleeping in. What, what did yeah. they, what did they say when you kind of took your bike into the room instead of a man? Uh, well, <laughs> I, I found a, a local Taiwanese girl who I who said to me I, okay. I said can you help me find accommodation and she took me to this place and the man who spoke very little English kept asking me if she was my friend and coming with me oh. I, I didn't understand why she was asking me that until I got into the room and saw some saw some things by the bed that made me think oh this maybe is not the kind of hotel that I was expecting <laughs> um, so yeah <laughs> Neil, that, Neil, I know you said Julie was interesting, but this is interesting. <laughs> yeah. so, so, so basically, you found a you found a love hotel, and and actually, that's kind of like yeah. the ideal place to stay, isn't it? Because you can rent it by the hour. Yeah. Like literally, I'm going to be there yeah. for three hours, and I'm going to be up and riding my bike again. Um, yeah. I mean, he phoned me at six a.m. and said, "You've got ten minutes. You need to be gone." Oh really? What did he have okay. like clients waiting to come in? Were they banging on the door? Maybe. Not sure, but I was out of there pretty quick at that point. Dare I ask what you found by the side of the bed? Uh, condoms and lubricant. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Nice. I, I, I pocketed the lube just in case I needed it later on. <laughs> I was, was going to say, was that saved for emergency uh, emergency chamois cream? Yeah, I did. I did. 
You did. Excellent. Yeah, just in do you, case. Do you still have that pocket that uh, that pack of lube? No, I threw it up before the uh, before the Taroko. Before climb. you got I home, realized no problem. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, I didn't bring that home. <laughs> I can imagine your I'm kids actually un- unpacking blushing. your bag, mummy. Yeah, what's this for? <laughs> what's this? No. So that must have been right. So have you got I, what? What I want to do when we when we actually air the podcast, when I get around to editing it, I'd love to put the uh, put like a screenshot of your data. Uh, like, do you have like your training peaks overview or Strava overview of that first day? Because you know, twenty three hours on the bike through that kind of terrain, that's got to be an epic day. Yeah, I, I'm not sure I saved my my ride at that point. I just paused my computer, but um, yeah, I can I can find the the screenshot of. That first day, um, yeah, it was it was the longest day I've. Well, actually, it wasn't the longest day I've ever ridden because only it was only I mean, three hundred and eighty k's or something. But uh, it was more elevation than I've ever ridden in one day. Certainly, you know, uh, only three hundred and eighty k. And how much how much elevation gain? I think it was close to. I mean. I don't know. It must have been close to six thousand, I guess. Um, I don't really know. I, that, that's beyond epic. Five, maybe five. Yeah, five, maybe. I, I don't really remember. <laughs> Half decent suffer score on that one. Yeah. Did did you did you did your computer say you need to now sleep for five days and don't think of getting on your bike for two weeks? <laughs> I, so this is one of the this is, I think this is one of the real. Yeah, I didn't. This is one of the really interesting things I find about ultra racing is we do these things like you know that day you've just described, that is basically somebody's. That's twice somebody's whole season goal. Like they'll they'll say I want to do one race that's maybe 160k with 3,000 meters of climbing. You've done twice that in 23 hours. You found a love hotel at three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> The guy's banging on the door at six, going, "Come on, I've got some client. You know, I've got I've got new guests coming in." Um, who goes to a love hotel at six o'clock in the morning? I have no idea. Taiwan's a funny place. I'm not even going to go there. And then, that, and obviously, they walk. You walk out. They walk in, and they go, "Where's the bloody lube?" <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So you so you had like three hours sleep, and then you carried on. Yeah, yeah. I uh, stopped and bought some food and shoved a bunch of croissants up my jersey and kept riding. It was it was good actually. Are we uh, talking Seven Eleven? Yeah, Seven Eleven. <laughs> Were you a Seven Eleven girl or a Family Mart girl? Uh, either. Wasn't fussy. <laughs> yeah, I was a Family Mart guy. Oh, uh, really? Yeah, yeah. Definitely preferred it. Um, so so I think, and that's probably for people who don't ultra race. That's probably the hardest thing for them to get their heads around is the fact that you do this incredibly long day, but then you only sleep for like three or four hours and people struggle to get their heads around. Well, well, how do you actually do that? I'm sure, you know, people are listening who've never done this. You know, hopefully there's 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 other women listening who can get inspired by your story. How do you get yourself back out of bed after three hours of sleep and get on and do the exact same thing again? I think you just know, you go in with a mindset that if you don't get up, then that's your race over. So you get up, you know, there's two choices, get up or game over. So, you know, I mean, 
for for women out there who have had kids, you know, I have to say it's not dissimilar to the first four months of breastfeeding a baby. You know, you you get up because you have to, and you know, you, you might have only had thirty minutes sleep, but you get up because you have to. Um, so it, it's I would say having children is great training for ultra riding because you learn how to exist on very little sleep and still function. Yeah. So if you've had kids, go and ultra race. I feel as though that's not something me and Neil can really relate to right now. No, no, probably not. And I'm, and, and I'm, I'm guessing from a, you know, a guy is never going to relate to that or even be able to leverage that in the same way that, that you will do. Cause it's you're having to get up to feed the kids, right? Yeah, yeah. And and did you see the like? It was it was like this time last year there was the uh, the spine race and that was won by uh, for the first time by a woman. She basically destroyed the field, kicked all the men's ass from here to the top of the Pennines in the UK, which is where the race was. And she was doing it whilst breastfeeding and expressing. Yep, every rest stop when everyone else was sleeping, she was pumping. Yeah, she's. that's like my mind was blown by that but clearly she probably was quite well adapted to not really sleeping that much yeah I I think you can get used to anything if if you have a uh, you know you have a reason for it so you know getting up to feed a baby is not dissimilar to getting up because if you don't you're not going to make the end of the race so it's just a mindset yeah that's that's I feel like I've silenced you both. <laughs> yeah, no, well, I, I, I think we're probably, I, I know there is a lot of talk at the moment about how women are are able to compete. Uh, I, I won't say it's a level playing field because it's, it's not, but I think there are attributes that you bring, which, which we don't have and are never going to have, and mm. that allows you to get to a point where you can compete, mm, where yeah. you can... You know, you can go and race, race the same race that the guys race, and yeah. and do well. You can go. Women can go and win, like like Fiona, like yeah. uh, the the woman who won won the the spine. And it's yeah. it is interesting to get your take on some of the things that make that happen. Mm. I mean, I, I think there are obviously women who are phenomenal athletes, and you know, you you Fiona is obviously someone who probably is, you know. A phenomenal phenomenal athlete and this is she's found her niche but uh I, I think also women do have different a different approach you know to racing long distance and to racing indeed you know in itself we're just we're built differently we exist differently in our heads um you know don't know I don't know exactly what it is but we certainly you know I think the endurance stuff levels the playing field yeah, I, I think uh, one of my views on this is you you don't have the ego that men carry around with them. Maybe yeah, and that ego can really can really hinder you when you're doing an ultra race because your ego says I'm not going to let that that person pass me. I'm going to chase that person down, and that's the last thing you should be doing because you should just be riding to your riding to your pace, riding to your strategy. And most of the women I've read been with, not all of them, but most of them just don't have that level of ego that, that guys carry around. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's probably I think that's probably a pretty good pretty good uh you know reflection on it. I think uh, you know I ride with a lot of guys here. There's there's a few women who ride here in Qatar, Perrine one of them, but uh 
you know, when you ride with men, they're all about destroying their friends. And, you know, I'd rather go out and ride at a lower pace and talk to my friends. So, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, it does beg the question that we, we talk about this and you talk about, obviously, with things like, you know, having kids. And do you think there's a lot to be said, you know, between us three with life experience and how it changes the way you race oh it must do um you know i i would say though however um you know having two kids who you know i i'm the breadwinner for our family really and having two kids means that i'm not prepared to take maybe some risks that that you guys might be prepared to take you know i i or that other people without children might be prepared to take. You know, I, I stopped on the top of Taroko at 7pm because I wasn't going down that in the dark and risking, you know, a crash that might take me out of work or, or worse, you know. So I think it might, life experience might be a good thing in that, you know, I'm, I'm possibly, I mean, I'm very competitive, but I'm, I'm not stupid competitive and I know what my limits are. But uh, I'm also more conservative than I would probably have been without having two kids that I want to see grow up so you know it's it's a balance um but I don't know I'm older and wiser hopefully (laughs) life experience honestly but I look now and I see there like and if I'm brutally honest this sounds quite like mean to say but there's a lot of dot watching I do and I sit there thinking like looking at some of the dots moving at silly o'clock in the morning in another country and you know you see people talking on Instagram on their stories oh the weather's so bad oh I can't do this can't do that and then you see people going down giant gravel descents and it, it does beg the question that I cannot believe the risks some people take sometimes and I just think it's you know it's beyond me that people would put themselves in such dire situations you know, for a race which really doesn't have much prize at the end of it. And I I think it hit me at one point and it, it did get me thinking a lot like in the Inca Divide when we were doing that, Neil, about like there's certain things like when I'm riding along some really tight roads in rush hour, there's dogs running out from the side. And sometimes you do kind of have to take yourself out the race and say, you know, what, what, is this a sensible thing to do or am I just too involved in this mentally that I need I'm taking too many risks and it's same with like TCR here's a good example I planned a route where I wasn't going to be on massive big roads and I took the safe and short ways but when you're actually racing it you're looking at the dot watching and you're seeing everyone taking the most risky roads possible just to save themselves 2k and it really made me question what kind of races I want to go in in the future because if I'm honest I'd rather do a set route race because I'm not that guy that wants to take the risks anymore Hmm. yeah I'm certainly not that girl um you know but no I I completely agree you just you shouldn't at the end of the day all it's ever going to be is a race you know it's better to get there get to the finish two hours later than not get there at all to say yeah absolutely absolutely I mean you know I I I was pretty gutted to have to stop up on the top of the mountain um and I I wouldn't have stopped unless a a lovely Taiwanese tour driver 
pulled over and basically told me that he didn't feel comfortable with me going down the uh, down the mountain in the dark and uh, proceeded to drive me up a little mountain road to find some accommodation for me. So maybe I swapped the risk of going down the mountain in the dark to uh, the risk of following a small Taiwanese van up a dirt dirt road in the dark. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, I, it all worked out well and he found me a, a hostel at the top of the, uh, the top of the mountain and I got six hours sleep and got up and came down in the in the daylight and all was well so you know a whole six hours sleep I know it was remarkable maybe even more maybe even more it was ridiculous (laughs) we'll come to Taroko Gorge in a bit because I I want to I want to hear about your experience on that because I, I think that is is one of the most incredible climbs in the world but uh, uh, tell me about the, the the ride into the bottom because i think we're still probably got two days here from you know day two day three before you get to the to the bottom of the climb mm. yeah um so you know you come down the down the down the coast uh cross cross the coast uh and then you head up the up the east coast really into the headwind for <clears throat> i think it must be close to 380 kilometers i've forgotten now um but uh, you really, I think we were a bit unlucky in that we got quite a quite a solid headwind that maybe doesn't always happen. But uh, I think we, you know, and I memories of the headwind that I rode into in Amman of sandstorms and 44 kilometer an hour headwinds. So all I could think of was how bad it was going to be. And it was pretty tough. Um, it was a long day. I think, you know, a long day in the saddle. I think it was, you know, when the wind finally stopped, the rain started. Um, so it felt like the the weather gods in Taiwan were really <laughs> playing with my head, uh, and uh, that was the lead into checkpoint two, um, which closed at eight a.m. on the third day, I guess. Um, and I was really targeting to get there by four a.m. So I kept pushing and pushing and pushing. Um, went past one of the British guys, Carl Tilling, who'd uh, had a bit of, I guess, Shermer's neck. Um, Stopped down in a gully, um, really trying to find some accommodation somewhere. Um, I stopped and talked to him just to make sure he was okay and then kept riding. And in true Axel style, we uh, passed through a cemetery in the middle of the night, in the middle of nowhere, <laughs> which was oh, no. <laughs> delightful. <laughs> I mean, uh, it was kind he of... He does like his surprises, yeah, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. It was, it was a proper cemetery in the middle of nowhere at... I mean, I, I guess it must have been about 2 a.m. when I rode through it. I just thought, honestly. Oh, freaky. Honestly. <laughs> I laughed, I think, because I just thought this is proper Axel kind of, you know, he was thinking about someone going through this at night. Um, I, I, I laughed. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, and uh, I hit checkpoint two by about 4 a.m. Uh, really pretty much broken, um, you know, and if you ask uh, David and Didier who were waiting for me at checkpoint two, knowing that I was the last person on the road at that point who was going to make the checkpoint, uh, they will both tell you that I was pretty much broken, um, you know, and uh, yeah. Physically, mentally, everythingly? Uh, I mean, I was tired. I was, I was as tired as I've ever been. And I think my, my words to Didier were, this is just too hard. Axel's made it too hard. <laughs> um. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you were the only one saying that. I mean, how much, how much sleep had you had at this point? So this is getting towards uh, so I had, end of day three, right? Start of day four. 
So I had about three hours on the first night. Uh, the second night I found a little little hotel with a little Taiwanese lady who didn't speak any English and I had about three hours then. Um, you know, I stopped for maybe four hours total, but I reckon I got about three hours sleep. Um, so I'd had about six hours total. I, I only stopped at night. I didn't stop and sleep at all during the day. So in the daytime, I just stopped to eat and uh, really tried to be on my bike for as much time as I could. Um, so that was, so yeah, by the, the that was the third night. Um, so I'd had six hours by that point. Um, yeah. And and checkpoint checkpoint two was at the uh, just before the start of the Taroko Gorge, I think, was it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's right at the base of the climb. So uh, you know, really leaving, you know, heading into that checkpoint that you've got the climb the next day or the next time you get on the bike, you're heading up Taroko, which. So you'd had six hours sleep you'd ridden i think it's like 800 kilometers to get to that point yeah you finished there at like four o'clock in the morning yeah i yep. i understand now why you looked pretty uh dead rough <laughs> destroyed yeah i wasn't looking my finest <laughs> and and how long how did i presume you then just went to sleep for a for a while to kind of recoup and and get your mojo back how, how long did you sleep for at checkpoint two uh so i think i slept for about four hours or I, I put my you know I had four hours in the room so I I learned from my mistakes in Amman and I worked out how to pretty quickly get things on charge into bed off to sleep um, one of the things that I did really and I, I would always do it again is I carried a small pair of kind of silk boxer shorts and every time as soon as I got into the room I showered and you know quick shower into boxer shorts to kind of allow everything to air um and that was that was a game changer for me you know I I, I had not even a beginning of the issues that I'd had with saddle soreness in in Amman so by the time I'd done that got my head down I got about three hours sleep and got up at about eight o'clock to try and head up to Roko. Silk boxer shorts. Now that's a good call because I imagine they don't take up much space, do they? They're very light. They take up no space, and they're a natural fabric, so they uh, feel like I'm selling them. But they uh, they they breathe. <laughs> There's going to be ultra races all over the world <laughs> running out to buy silk underwear now. Um, yeah, I can imagine that's quite a night. Like, because one of the worst feelings is you get to the end of the day and you get you know you get to your room and you just fall into bed. Yeah, and then you yeah. wake up and you just feel horrible. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine you know shower and some silk underwear. Yep. You yep. Kind of. You're gonna feel a bit nice after that. Yeah. It was. A, it was a. It was a real game changer. Actually, it was. You know, I, I would say my my saddle area was in much better condition than it's that it certainly was in Oman. You know, I. Yeah. It's much better. <laughs> Which is impressive because Taiwan is. There was a lot more moisture in Taiwan, and generally, it's moisture that causes the problems. Yeah. And you know, uh, we, we kind of dancing around it a little bit but man or woman down there just can get horrific i mean you know it 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 ended georgie georgie's race you know and and that was a horrible thing to to watch and and see her ahead of me racing so well and and have her kind of have to pull out and admit herself to hospital with with what is pretty serious saddle sores you know she was in she was really? in a bad way yeah you know i kind of was saying to her just find somewhere to get some some lidocaine some anesthetic cream or something like that and she just said i can't it's you know it's done so yeah teens lidocaine <laughs> all right well no lidocaine cream so julie 
uh, I credit with saving my TCR, other than the spare mech hanger, of course, <laughs> um, because I discovered lidocaine. Like I, I think this was in, at the end of a man. We were talking about yeah. saddle sore, and and Julie said, "You've got to use lidocaine cream or lidocaine gel. Mm. It's you know, it's 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 a numbing cream." And I, I'd kind of forgotten about that completely. Mm. Riding through Serbia, I think it was like day three or day four. Uh, I think it was day four. Um, super hot start, so really sweaty, lots of rain, real serious chaffing issues going on. And suddenly I remembered, ah, Julie said, now what did she talk about? What did she talk about? Ah, lidocaine cream. So I went into a, a pharmacy and they had lidocaine gel. And, you know, you kind of come out and you stood in this kind of busy street because it's eight o'clock in the morning and you look from side to side and you squirt some out and stick your hand down your shorts and... 10 minutes later you're like oh i can't feel anything <laughs> yeah it's magic oh the oh the pain's gone oh, oh and you get this sweet sweet relief kind of relief i can imagine you feel getting into silk underwear yeah yeah you get this sweet relief for six hours <laughs> and then you have to repeat the process <laughs> so yeah lidocaine it's you've heard it here people silk underwear and lidocaine cream is the julie melville two-step approach to ultra cycling greatness <laughs> I so hope they pick up on this and you get some sponsorship out of this, Julie. I really am. <laughs> I'm waiting for the, uh, the, the lube manufacturer in Taiwan to get in touch. <laughs> Silk underwear, numbing cream and some sex lube. <laughs> oh my God. I'm blushing. I'm blushing. <laughs> It's a rock and roll lifestyle, this ultra racing, isn't it? Right. So you got, you got, you got four hours sleep in your in your silk in your silk underwear. Yeah. Um, and then you had Taroko Gorge, which which is just, I mean, if no one, if you're not into ultra racing and you want to go and do it, go and do the Taiwan Com Challenge. Um, if you are into ultra racing, go and when when Axel brings back Taiwan, go and do it because the Taroko Gorge is just amazing. Yeah. How amazing for you was it? I mean, it's, uh, you spend the whole, for me, I spent the whole time sort of telling myself, wow, this is amazing. And, you know, it's, you know, on the, on the day before when I'd messaged my husband, as I usually do on about that time saying, I am never doing one of these ever again. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I always kind of caveat that with till the next time but uh I messaged him and he said you know I said I don't know whether I can do this and he said well the the KOM climb is on the bucket list and you know you people like wait their whole lives to climb this and you're about to climb it so get up there you know he he kind of gave me a and, and my sister actually I rang on the morning sobbing at checkpoint two because I needed some Red Bull and couldn't find any and didn't know whether I could do it and uh, I rang my sister and she just basically said to me, you, you paid money for this and you paid money to do something that is, you know, on most people's bucket lists. So just get out there and stop being miserable. So um, I, <laughs> I, I bought a can of Red Bull and uh, up I went and I spent the whole time just honestly looking around me going, this is absolutely stunning. I, you know, there, there were two points in Taiwan that I was breathtakingly, you know, one was just before the jungle descent, uh, there's a gorge there that I've never seen anything so beautiful. And then Taroko, you know, going up with the, the gorge, every corner you go around, there's a red bridge or a, you know, crystal blue azure 
kind of stream. It, it just, it's so beautiful. Like, if you haven't done it or you, you, you think you might, then just go do it at least once in your life. Go and climb Taroko Gorge, I would say. I, I'm, I'm crying again now. <laughs> that's... Uh, yeah, that, I mean that's 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 just how I remember it. I mean, it, it is that spectacular, and and I think, okay, so I know we said in in a man you never really got tired enough to get properly emotional, but by this stage you must be you must have been breaking down at the first sight of a bird or a ray of sunshine or something. Pretty emotional, yeah. <laughs> Anything really, a rock. <laughs> <laughs> that is such a beautiful rock. <laughs> so round and so so rocky. I had um I, I ride with uh just just so that everyone knows I ride safely, I ride with uh bone conduction headphones so I can hear the traffic. Um they again one of those things that, you know, I, I rode in Amman with them and came home and told everyone how amazing these bone conduction headphones are. So you can hear, they're not in your ears, you can hear, but the music is in your head because it's conducted through the bones. And uh, I, I rode up with uh, music playing and I'd, I'd put together a playlist based on kind of people who donated money to save the children, um, got to choose according to how much they donated a certain number of songs on my playlist. And uh <clears throat> Uh, there were a few kind of songs that were uh, that came on going up to Rocco. One was 500 Miles by the Proclaimers, and that had me in fits of tears. <laughs> I was like, just <laughs> don't know why, but uh, it just brought on the tears. So, yeah, it was... It was... I don't think I'm ever going to be able to listen to the Proclaimers again <laughs> and not cry. Yeah, yeah, it was nice. Um, and, yeah, just... And knowing that you were doing something like Taroko, I mean, people say to me, "But was it not really hard?" And you know, I'd watched all the GCN, you know, the GCN shows about Taroko climb, so I kind of knew that I was expecting this epic hard climb. But quite frankly, after the first day of those, you know, repeated short little climbs and thousands of meters of climbing, Taroko was beautiful, but it didn't feel, you know, it was just a long day of riding uphill. You know, it didn't feel hard it just felt long so and and I think I'd maybe messaged you on the morning going oh my god how many hours is this going to take me and in my head I had prepared that it might take me 12 hours and you know that was just it you know I was like well if it takes me 12 hours it takes me 12 hours and I just keep riding how long did it take you oh well I stopped at the top so um I think I got to the top. I, I left at about, I don't know, 8.30, 9 o'clock in the morning and I got to the top at about 6, no, so 9 till 6, however many hours that is, um, 7, 7 and a half, 8, 8 maybe. Don't really remember. I was tired at that stage. But, uh, yeah, it took me a lot less than I thought it was going to, so I was pleasantly surprised. I finished in the dark and I think climbing in the dark always makes things seem like they take less time you know hills in the dark seem less steep in my opinion um did you did you get the moonlight at the top as the sun you know because I, I remember when i did it i i was in cloud all day i i just saw cloud and mist for my climb the taroko gorge but when i came out of the top suddenly the cloud had cleared and like the moonlight was shining and it, it was just like wow this is mind-blowing yeah, no, I, I don't I don't really remember seeing... I think it might have been quite cloudy by the time I got to the top. Um, I didn't see the moon. I kind of 
got to the top and I'd had a few run-ins with just close passes with cars so I was hyper vigilant at looking at the road so I don't even think I looked <laughs> anywhere apart from the road in front of me um yeah and and I just yeah I, I mean I, I I went to sleep that night and then got up for f sort of uh, I was trying to work out what time maritime uh sunrise was so that I could get up sort of and leave my hotel in the dark but you know be on the top right at the top for for sunrise and people pay a lot of money for sunrise up on the top of Taroko Gorge and uh, I managed yeah. to get it for free so um, I got up there just as the sun kind of came up over the mountains and it was pretty special too you know sunrise on Taroko is pretty magical I, and I'm guessing that would have made you happy that you stayed up there overnight rather than push on down yeah, absolutely. You know, it's it's. I spent the whole night beating myself up because you know you don't stop for that long in an ultra race. But uh, like I said, you know, I spent I spent the night kind of flipping between. Well, you know, I, I've got two kids. I wanted to go home and see, and it takes takes one car doing. You know, not not being careful, and you know, in the dark, really pitch dark on those mountains. And I was like, I'm not. Um, you know, in the end, it was the right decision. It was a hard decision, but it was right. And then. I spent some time Googling sunrise in Taroko to find out what time it came up. And I thought, no, this is right. This is good. I'm going to see a sunrise. It's going to be amazing. So, you know. Awesome. It's beautiful. And so you then had one one day left to go? Uh, yeah. I knew I needed to finish by 4 a.m. Sort of. So basically when I woke up, I had 24 hours to finish. Um, right. Okay. Um and and so this last day, I mean, we've already heard about the very end of the last day, um, but talk us through this last day, because I, I did get a couple of texts from you as you were going down, <laughs> basically saying, Neil, it's miserable. Does it ever stop raining? When am I going to get out of this rain? And, and you'd like send pictures of this rain covered road with clouds and you had like every piece of kit on keeping you warm yeah I was. and, you, and you're descending from like for those who don't know Taroko Gorge peaks out or, or where you cross over the the mountain ranges in on biking man you're at like two and a half two thousand six hundred meters it's high it's cold yeah I mean my bike computer as I left the hotel read minus one um Oh, <laughs> yeah. Rather yeah. you than me. This is a girl who doesn't do cold, so <laughs> I was pretty cold. Oh, man, that's cold. Yeah, yeah. And, you know. I feel that would have been the same level of pain as Neil in 14 degrees in Dubai. Yeah, it was. Uh... No, no, 14 degrees in Dubai feels a lot colder than minus one <laughs> in Taiwan. For sure. It has to. <laughs> yeah. So it was, it, it was minus one. And was it raining right from the start? No, I mean, it was, uh, it was, I came down the hill at that point and uh, it was beautiful, really beautiful. And, you know, I, I basically spent the first, I mean, I don't know how many kilometres just chasing the sun, really trying to find some warmth. And, you know, there was a couple of moments when I, I found a patch of sun and just kind of absorbed it for a minute and then hit the cold again. But uh I think it was I, I I just kind of hit the sun and I thought yeah the worst is behind me because I was I was pretty cold you know descending at that kind of temperature and all I, I I kept thinking in my head you know Neil kept saying to me you you lose a degree for every hundred meters of climb so in my head I was like okay well I'm going to gain a degree for every 
I don't know how many meters of climb. And so in my head, I kept thinking, the more you go down, the warmer it's going to get, the more you go down, the warmer it's going to get. And that was kind of what kept me going. And then hit this patch of sunlight, thought, yep, that's it. You know, I'm in the sun now. And then I came around kind of a, a corner and then back into another kind of gorge. And as I came around into the corner, I, I hit this freezing fog. And I just thought, oh, this is not, you know, this fog just descended. And I thought, this is not part of the plan. And then around the next corner, the rain started. And, you know, I, I had all my lights on. The visibility dropped to sort of, you know, next to nothing. I was wet and freezing cold and you know I, I for those of you who don't know I ride a, a an S-Works tarmac with uh, rim brakes <laughs> so I just it was on, on carbon rims as well ah uh, no I, I I had uh I had aluminium rims for this race I, I rode carbon rims in Amman rather stupidly so uh no I mean I would never have finished because I I used a whole set of brake pads descending I think Taroko in the wet and uh yeah, I spent the next God knows how long descending in freezing fog with no visibility, with basically on the brakes because I was so scared. And uh, yeah, I was miserable, <laughs> so miserable. I I cried, pretty much cried the whole way down, <laughs> wearing everything I owned except the boxer shorts. <laughs> uh, do you know what? I would have, I would have, I would have probably worn them on my head. I would have done anything to keep warmer. Yeah, I was cold. Do you know, I, it's funny in ultras that, like, you, everyone that talks like, oh, I've done this big day cycling before and it's never done an ultra. Everyone's like, oh, the descent was amazing. It seems in ultras it's like, I always find descent, descent's awful because you either get really cold on the way down because it's night, like what happened to you or a funny time of the day, or you've got this issue as, oh, I get to have a quick rest here. But as soon as you start putting the gas on again at the bottom, there is just so much pain to be had. And it just takes away your rhythm. So I'll be honest, I, I'm i a big hater of descents, you know, in, in ultra racing, as, as bad as that sounds. Actually, and climbs as well. Just give me flat races. Quite happy with flat ones. Yeah. No, I, I like climbing. Um, you know, ironically enough, given for a girl who lives in Qatar, where there are absolutely no hills, I quite like climbing. But... Um, yeah, I, I don't I don't descend well. And uh, in fact, I think on the southern end of the island, there was a tour group um, of older Taiwanese people who love their cycling, who were doing basically a similar route to ours, but over the course of, uh, I think, 10 days. And uh, they one of them was on an e-bike going down a hill and they beat me. They passed me. <laughs> yep. Yep. I got beaten by a grandmother on an e-bike down a hill. Yeah, but that is that. I remember there's. Do you actually, Neil? You'll laugh at this. Um, so anyway, me and Neil know a guy called Andreas from back 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 in the old biking man days, and I remember seeing this really famous video that got like I don't know six million views of a guy with bike packing gear on going up this hill, and this you know really old guy next to him just absolutely hammering him. And then um, I saw the video came up in my feed like a few months ago, and I realised it was a our friend Andreas and I was like actually I completely respect the fact that he's probably been riding for like two or three days and he is that destroyed at this point that that does happen and it's it's soul destroying when you're on an ultra and then you get someone that's just going out for their Sunday club run 
they come past you looking all smug and you're like, you don't know how far I've been. You know, <laughs> you don't know what I've been through, do you? And all this. And it's, it is soul destroying, though. It really is. The Taiwanese love their bike. They they love their bikes though. The whole all the Taiwanese people, you know, they see you on a bike and they cheered. And you know, the cycling groups who were out riding for their Sunday ride were all just cheering and hooting. And they just they're a real cycling nation. It sounds like you just really fell in love with Taiwan as a place. You enjoyed the you know really enjoyed the people, the scenery, everything. You know how is that? How yeah? How was Taiwan? as like as a as a place to go because it's a very different it's not like the normal place you go on holiday is it no uh, i mean i i the people are apart from the fact that they don't speak much english so google translate is a is a necessary but um they're helpful they're friendly you know i felt incredibly safe you know there was not a single time that i thought mm, you know this is a bit shady um uh, you know a girl in the middle of the night helped me find a hotel, you know, <laughs> she could have just said, no, you know, I, people hugged me, you know, there was people who, you know, in, in family food or in sort of family marts and 7-Elevens who kind of sat me down and bought me a hot drink and, you know, they're just nice people, really nice people and friendly and gracious and calm and patient and, you know, it's a beautiful, beautiful country, you know. I, I'm starved of green here in Qatar. You know, it's not a very green country. So, you know, an absolutely beautiful country. Um, I, I'm trying to convince my family to go back. I, I must admit my experience of um, Taiwan, you know, was, was fantastic. The same as well as yours and probably yours as well, Neil, mate. But one thing that did upset me, and I don't think I've ever told you this, Neil, actually, which is quite an interesting fact. When I was riding Biking Man Taiwan, I was amazed by the people, the country, the 7-Elevens, because they're just so good. And um, it got to a point of where I was riding down the coast and I was looking for a place to sleep. And this was the night I, I saw you, Neil. Um, and I, I before I got kind of caught up to you, I actually went to find a place and I saw all these people standing outside. And I stopped and said, you know where I can sleep? And it, it was this American group, these four American guys, and they were just, they were in this little village and they were playing all this really heavy music and they were just disruptive. And that was the most unpleasant thing because I thought, God, all I've seen is just the most amazing things of Taiwan and it's just really embraced as a country. And I just bumped into these Americans and they were just so disruptive and they were like, you can stay here if you want. I said, actually, no, in that principle, they, they offered me a bed and said, we'll turn the music down. And I said, I'm not interested and carried on. And that really kind of threw, you know, like threw me off because I was like, God, what? I just love this island, everything about it. And then I met some people like English, American, Western. <laughs> I was sitting there thinking, wow, actually, I can't. I wish they'd just been, they couldn't speak English, you know, Taiwanese people in the end. And it, it kind of, it, it made me think a lot about my races. I, I love these kind of places we go to because of the locals, the customs, the way it all works. And then I kind of got brought back to reality as in, oh, I'm not the first one here. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, so you, you, you're flying down this road or gently tiptoeing down this road. It's freezing cold. It's raining. When did the rain stop? Did the rain ever stop? Or was it raining all the way through till kind of like when you finished? 
uh, on and off, on and off. Um, I think the, the the turning point coming down that hill really was uh, was when uh, I saw a car coming towards me that or coming up the hill um, with its with its uh, with its trunk or its boot open, and you know that that to me I recognised immediately. It was one of the kind of you know it was the the car with the media car with the race angels in it, and. Uh, you know, I, they by the time they got themselves up the hill and then turned around and came back down and pulled in front of me, um, you know, I, I I I needed to see someone really, <laughs> and uh, I think uh, I think they that's where all the photos, some of the photos of me looking pretty grim come from, um, and I was trying so hard to not look like I was grim because I knew they were videoing and taking photos, but it's just there was nothing there. <laughs> No offence, but I don't think you tried hard enough. No. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, David said it was really hard to watch, you know, and I think uh, at one point they kind of pulled pulled aside and, and you know, Eleonora, who I, I rode with in Amman, so I knew her very well and I'd seen her a couple of times out on the course in Taiwan and she shouted out the window, there's tea in 500 metres or you know, in, in a kilometre or something like that. I mean, honestly, at that point I was I was done. I wasn't sure I could keep going down the hill and just in time I found a, a family mart um, and, uh, you know, I spent a good half an hour in there warming up with my hands sort of on various heated elements in the, in the shop to try and get some warmth and fill my water bottles with hot tea and, you know, that was, that was yeah... I mean, it kept raining from, you know, I got back on the bike, it was still raining and they said goodbye, but I was a bit warmer and it rained on and off all the way into Taiwan, really, into Taipei, sorry, um, on and off. I think I wore my rain jacket. I, I took the down jacket off when I hit the flat, but uh, on and off pretty much all the way into, into Taipei City. Um, so, yeah, I don't, I don't love rain. So that was a tough day, really tough. And, and obviously we've we've then talked through that incident with your your hamstring so you've had you've had this day you've been riding and 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 uh, you know let's rewind a bit you finished like at two o'clock in the morning three o'clock in the no, morning no 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 um I think don't get me wrong but I finished at 10 p.m so um yeah I think it was like in my head, it's ten. No, I'm sure it was ten p.m. because it was. Yeah, maybe midnight. I can't remember, but uh, it was. It was definitely the cutoff was four a.m. and I finished. Yeah, no, I think it was about ten p.m. It was about ten p.m. I think. So you were up at like five a.m. that morning or six a.m. It was dark when you set off so you could get sunlight at the top it was cold wet rainy all the way down and and once you get to the bottom after the descent there's there's more climbing to come and so you're climbing and descending in the rain and there's some steep nasty climbs and it's horrible yeah you finally get to the flat and you can take your down jacket off yeah you then rupture your hamstring (laughs) yeah um what was the emotion running through your head when you crossed that finishing line other than how am I going to unclip from the wrong side? <laughs> yeah. um, well, I mean, I, I, I think 
I was riding through Taipei and it was it, there were lots of cars on the road, so it was really busy. So I was trying really hard to concentrate because all I could think was, oh my god, imagine if I got hit by a car in the final 500 meters or final kilometer, and you know, I, I, so I was concentrating really hard through traffic and uh, I, I wasn't really looking for the the Song Songjiang Sports Center, and all of a sudden, kind of my Garmin or my my Wahoo beeped at me as if to say, you've reached your destination. And I looked up and. Uh, Every single person who'd raced or who'd come to watch someone race or who'd been at the, the presentation dinner was actually uh, that evening, so I missed that. Um, and uh, every single person was standing there um, at, on the side of the road and kind of I pulled off the road and somebody grabbed me and helped me unclip and, you know, I, I just, yeah, I, I think I kind of rode on a bit further, you know, walked on a bit further just to kind of, have a minute or two by myself because I needed to to get my head straight. Um, but yeah, and then it was you know I I thought I would cry. I really thought I would cry, and I think I probably had a little kind of bit of emotion. But then I was just surrounded by people who you know I had probably met some of them before, but lots of them I just met or you know hadn't even met. I just followed them along the road, or they'd been part of the WhatsApp group and. Every single one of them, you know, are so happy to see them, <laughs> like so happy. Just, um, you know, there was there was Fabian uh, Burry, the the Swissman, the crazy Swissman, who I met in a sandstorm in Oman, who, uh, you know, had been messaging me through that day, reminding me to eat before the sort of two final climbs, and you know, he kind of was. I caught him out of the corner of my eye, and I just I was so happy to see him and. Eleonora and Axel and, you know, just people who, I don't know, happy, 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 so happy. I'm happy now. I'm almost crying. <laughs> I think we all are. And, and that's, that's such a wonderful summary or kind of overall as to why, why we all come back. Because that's, that's just, that's an amazing story. And thank you for sharing it with us in such an incredible way i want to go back and write it now i want to go back to taiwan now that's just made me just want to go and yeah ride my bike till i fall asleep <laughs> um it's 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 incredible and it, and it just sounds like such a such an incredible journey um i, I guess two two more questions then and, and then we will we will wrap up because we've we've kept you here far too long and i'm sure your kids uh uh need need some need their mum back um I know you're still recovering from your injury, but it sounds like your journey into the world of ultra racing is not quite done yet. No, no. I mean, what's next? Uh, who knows? Um, that's. Uh, <laughs> I was uh, as the places for Corsica were uh, going rapidly uh, in the biking men Corsica race. I uh, said to my physio on Thursday or Wednesday this week. I said, "So, uh, do you think?" end of April, May is, and she said, too soon. <laughs> okay, righto. Um, uh, so look, you know, I've looked at a few things. I've looked at, uh, you know, I've looked at Laos. Uh, I'm not saying that right, am I? La La Laos? 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 But you're saying it a lot better than Robbie would say it. <laughs> I think it's Lao, actually. Lao. I think it's Lao. <laughs> I've looked at Lao. Um, Again, I, I look at a race and, you know, the thing that I look at most is, is personal safety and, and, you know, 
Um, is it a safe country for me as a woman to ride alone? Um, and I'm still working on that to decide that for Lao. Um, Julie, Julie, race around Netherlands. <laughs> You'll love it. Amazing race. Like, honestly, like, I, it's one that I, you, you, yeah, yes, absolutely amazing race. See you there. Already booked on it. First of May. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. No, it's a, yeah, that's a, the safest race I think you'll ever find. <laughs> this this year's slightly complicated. I've got a, a wedding in Boulder in, in Colorado in June, July to go to. My sister's getting married, so that kind of puts July out of the picture. Um, I don't know. Um, if I if I could have if I could have, I would have raced race around Rwanda. So I may well just reset and come back for doing something like that um, next year really, really well. Um, you know, I, I realistically, I'm still not allowed to ride outdoors yet. So uh, I think I can't really start planning a race until I can ride a 100-kilometre ride outdoors as a starting point. So I don't want to put pressure on myself. I don't want to kind of put pressure to come back too early. I want to do it right. And, you know, I'm, I'm in the gym. I'm working really well on getting properly strong and, and I don't want this to... You know, if I if I don't do this right, this potentially is is cycling career ending. Um, so I I got to get this rehab right, and uh, I think uh, look, I've looked at all sorts. I've looked at, you know, I, I have grand visions one day of of going and doing the Inca Divide or something like that. You know, but uh, yeah, we'll see, we'll see. No firm plans at the moment. Just I want to get back and. Get, get on my bike first of all well i i'm sh- i'm sure you'll be back on it uh before your physio tells you you should probably be fully back on it um and i'm um, you know hopefully yeah i think we all wish you a, a very a very successful recovery and i'm sure we will see you at another race uh sooner or later um you know but you've, you've got to get that uh, that recovery right um now and and you have to come back and tell us about it. We we I I want to I want to talk to you again uh, when you when you're off on your next race. Uh, and I think there's a there's a lot more things that we could have talked about here. Um, I I just want to one final question. Um, and it, it kind of touches on what we talked about earlier. What if you could give one piece of advice to certainly to the women out here listening who you know look at this and go wow you know that sounds amazing but I just don't know I don't know where to start I don't know if I ever could. I'm worried about so many things. How, you know, what's what's your one piece of advice that you could do to in, encourage women to, to to look at this and and get involved in in a sport that's given you such amazing experiences? Ooh, that's a hard one. That's a really hard one. What would be the one piece? Um, I think I think there are a lot of women who don't believe in themselves enough or don't, uh, you know don't trust that their bodies can do amazing things you know I think you know actually Eleonora um, is someone who talks really firmly about the psychology of these races and you know you've got to be fit you've got to be strong um, but you've also got to believe and you've got to believe that you can do it so I would tell girls women you know out there that if you really want to do something like this you know you can of course you can just you know, get out there, do it, try it. If you, if you fail the first time, if you fail the second time, it doesn't matter. Just keep trying and, and, you know, I just get out there and do it. You know, it's, 
it's the, the, the thing about ultra racing for me is that it's not about the race. It's, um, it's about the people. It's about the community that kind of builds itself around races. And, you know, I haven't met half of these people who, you know, have given me advice, who've, you know, they're all giving me advice, you know, online and stuff like that. But they're, they're just a community like you've never met before. So, you know, join the community, even if you never finish a race, just get out there and have fun and give it a go. Awesome. Julie, thank you so, so much. It's been absolutely awesome to talk to you. Um, and I hope all of you listening have really enjoyed this as much as we have. And if you have any questions uh, for us or for Julie, uh, you know, send us, send us those questions on the Facebook group or through Instagram and you know we'll do our best to to get them covered and you know tell us what you thought of the show tell us what you thought of our first interview tell us tell us what you thought of of julie's journey into this incredible world of ultra racing and and let us know you know are you going to go and take your first steps into to ultra racing in 2020 so julie thank you so much robbie i will see you same time next week honest see you same time next week and <laughs> really so it's 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 goodbye from me yeah goodbye and thank you julie it's been lovely lovely to meet you as thanks well, robbie finally. i've heard so much about you neil sings your praises constantly and um yeah it's it's actually quite a lot to take in but you know amazing journey and i i really look forward to i'm sure we'll cross paths at a race soon when you're better i hope so but go easy I on me so. is that all right yeah, I um, I'll try. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Sounds good. No, really, really enjoyed that, Julie. Absolutely awesome. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks a lot, guys. Thank you.